Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. The reading this morning is from John chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can, can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus said. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe me. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Golly, that's a, quite a passage, isn't it? Like so often happens in the Gospel of John, uh, it's both kind of familiar and unfamiliar. It's as we expected and totally surprising at the same time. We've got probably the, the most famous verse in all of Christianity. It's the one that shows up on signs at uh, sporting events. Uh, it's kind of the Prince or the Pavarotti or the Bono of Scripture. We just have to say the name, say the word, and it's enough to send us right into the heart of Christian faith. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him may have uh, everlasting life. Which is a wild thing for John to have said to his Gentile uh, audience, mostly Gentile audience, who would have had no framework for thinking of a God who so loves them. Or this, this weird bit about Moses raising up the serpent in the, 
in the desert, which is a whole sermon in itself. It's a reference to the story in Exodus where the people of Israel have once again failed to live into their people of God uh, identity, and they're, they're punished by these uh, serpent snaky type things. <laughs> uh, but God tells Moses to make a serpent out of bronze and to raise it up and have the people look at it, and anyone who looks at it will be saved from the attacking snakes. They have to look at the thing that is killing them, and Jesus says that when he's crucified, it's going to be something like that. And I think we could be here until tomorrow unpacking that. Uh, we're not going to do that, but I do think it gets us to the point of it all, which is to look at Jesus and see him well. Pay attention to the one who calls us to follow him into freedom and into life. So let's pray that we might do that today. God, we pray that you would help us to see uh, you well. Help us to know you better, to trust you more. Help us to know your voice. We pray that we would hear it today, that it would be a comfort, a consolation, conviction, whatever it is you want for us today, we hear that, pray that we would hear it so that we might know you better and make you better known in this world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to re remind us that the, uh, the goal of the season of Lent is, is Easter, right? Uh, that, that's where we're headed. There's no need to pretend like we don't know what's coming. Uh, we, we, we have this advantage over the disciples uh, maybe it's surprising every year, but it shouldn't be like a big surprise what's going to happen in the story. And so Lent is a time of preparation, of, of seeing Jesus well, of hearing his call, of orienting and reorienting our lives to his way so that we can be ready to live in the wonder of his resurrection in our whole lives. In, in Lent, we're invited to, to wade a little deeper into the grace of God, uh, for us, to know a little better the whole height and depth and length and width of God's love for us in Christ. Uh, it, this is a time of personal reflection, of taking stock of our own lives, of being aware that there is only intentional and unintentional spiritual formation, right? There is no neutrality when it comes to our spirits. And although we tend to give up fairly personal things or take on fairly personal things, in spite of the very personal nature of this season, we need to remember its goal, which is Easter. And Easter is never about just me or just me and Jesus. We're preparing to live the resurrection more intentionally, to be ambassadors of the good news for the world more intentionally. And the thing is, we can't give what we don't got right? Without times of intentional spiritual formation, times when we work to see Jesus more clearly, to trust him more deeply, to uh, receive his love, his peace, his joy, his hope more fully, without that, we won't have that stuff to share with the world around us. Without rhythms of intentional spiritual formation, it's easy to forget that his call is not to be in the world for God, like not running around doing things for Jesus or living our lives with God as kind of a spiritual embellishment to whatever it is we're getting up to, but to be in God for the world. People shaped and oriented towards the world as it will be when God gets the world God wants. The spiritual formation can devolve into kind of a, a self-indulgence with a little Jesus sprinkled on it, right? A, a kind of vaguely spiritual self-help. But the goal of Lent is not 
self-help. It's to let Jesus do that inner work in us and then turn us inside out. To let the Spirit draw us deeper into God's love for us, whatever else is going on. Because we can't give what we don't got. And then to send us out and to take part in God's determination to love this world into healing and wholeness. The Christian spirituality always sends us out into the world. Even if we withdraw for a period, we're not allowed to sort of try to live hovering between heaven and earth. Following Jesus is a dusty business, right? This is a feet-on-the-ground reality, a truth we can see and touch and taste and hear and smell, as we just heard from John's letter. And I think it's really important to remember that as we eavesdrop on this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. I mean, it's not really clear why Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Is he there on his own or on behalf of his fellow leaders? He's there, is he there at night because it's meant to be kind of a clandestine meeting, like he doesn't want to be caught? Or is that just when the crowd's left and Nick could finally get a word in? It doesn't really matter, I don't think. What does matter, though, is that this conversation will plant a seed that will blossom into a surprising devotion to Jesus. Nicodemus shows up again at the end of John's Gospel, this time bringing spices to bury Jesus with, the way a loved one would, caring for his battered body as if he were a family member, a beloved friend. And I think that at the heart of that seed of devotion is the fact that this conversation points to something that is not ethereal, not some life-after-death reality, but to a here-and-now immersion in the presence of God and in the company of the one who reveals that presence. Now, there comes a point in the conversation where Nicodemus is all tied in philosophical and theological knots, and Jesus says, if I've told you about earthly things and you don't understand, how are you going to understand if I tell you about the heavenly things I could tell you about? And that comes as a bit of a surprise, frankly, because to this point, things have been sounding awfully heavenly. Now, here's what we've been talking about, being born again, or born from above, or reborn, The, the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but I would say these sound like fairly heavenly realities. I'm kind of on Nicodemus' side here, but Jesus is, is clear. This is earthy, earthly stuff. This is about God's love for the world. About this time and place, experienced in and through Jesus, and in the folks who love him and follow him. And I want to spend a few minutes this morning thinking about these three earthly realities. So first, born again. (laughs) My guess is that makes some of you squirm. This is not a language we use in our tradition very much. Uh, Most of what we hear uh, and experience about folks who call themselves born again Christians tells us that that designation typically is for uh, particularly conservative, uh, sometimes aggressive and self-righteous types, right? And it calls to mind the, the aunt or the friend or the neighbor who can't get through a conversation without telling you that something in your life has you on the slippery slope to hell. You know, these are the people who write me emails in all caps. I was walking in downtown Vancouver last week, and I happened to come across this guy who was up on a step stool. I guess he couldn't find a soapbox. So he was on a step stool, yelling the truth of Jesus into a bullhorn <laughs> and demanding that people who were just trying to cross the street uh, repent. Uh, so they can be saved from eternal damnation. And it was, it was totally cringy, right? And I mean, God bless them. I, I, you know, but I, I don't think this was really about 
uh, the folks who were just trying to make their way home on a Friday afternoon. And I don't know a single person who's ever been converted because they got yelled at. As one preacher has put it, if, G- if God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn it, he probably didn't send you either. <laughs> it seems very much like in, or in the world for God. And I don't, I don't know whether that's fair. It's probably not. But this is more or less what I think about when I think about kind of born-again Christians. You know, people yelling condemnations at people that Jesus doesn't condemn. People worried more about the furniture of heaven and the temperature of hell than the world that Jesus was sent to save. But that's not at all what Jesus says, is it? When Jesus talks about being reborn or born from above, it's, it's clearly not about somewhere else, <laughs> some other time. It's not about where we go uh, when we die. It's about a new kind of life here and now. It's about receiving the grace of God to save us from the stuff that is killing us here so that we can be fully alive. Now, too often the idea of being born again is equated or reduced to like something we do, the choice that we make. It's essentially our responsibility. But although we know that babies do certainly have a role to play in getting born, I think it's fair to say that uh, they don't have a whole lot of control in the whole ordeal right? I mean, the initial choice certainly isn't theirs. And the vast majority of their effort is not expended by the one being born, but by the one giving birth. And I think the same is true in our spiritual lives. To be born again is to simply receive a new possibility for life. It's to let ourselves be the objects of God's astonishing grace, to be birthed into a a fresh hope of uh, freedom that we can't work out for ourselves, not by working hard enough or saving enough money for retirement or being a good person, whatever that means. To be born from above is to let our minds not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but transformed for the sake of the world as it will be. It's God's insistence that the death-dealing ways of the world do not have to shape our lives, and will not get the last word on us. To be born again is to know that God's mercies are new every morning and to let that mercy grow us into the likeness of Christ. It's to be resurrection people in this time and place with these neighbors, (laughs) these people. To be born again is not a meal ticket into heaven. It's a new way of living here on earth. It's to learn not just to see the kingdom of God, but to enter it, Jesus says. Unless you're born from above, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not somewhere someday. It's an overlap of heaven and earth. That's what Jesus is talking about. An overlap of heaven and earth. It's what happens when we let God's healing purposes find shape in and through us. I think whenever we think about the kingdom of God, the the, the kind of best place to go for my money is Acts chapter 2, where we see this community of people, largely nobodies, completely untheologically educated, (laughs) theologically uneducated, (laughs) uh, maybe both, um, learning to live in the wake of Jesus' resurrection, right? Learning to embody the fact that they live in a world in which Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, And we see all sorts of wild things, right? We see social barriers crumbling. People who never would have been together and seen together now are eating together, worshiping together, praying and singing together, working together. We see a radical generosity where the uh, rich folks are embracing a kind of downward mobility and and poor folks are being raised up in dignity. It's the, the mountains are being leveled and the valleys are being raised up just like John the Baptist and Isaiah promised. 
We see bodies and souls healed. We see marvelous things, impossible things taking shape. We see people astonished, not church people, but people who are paying attention to the creative, redemptive, head-over-heels love uh, um, of the Holy Spirit at work in these everyday people in everyday places. Right? And these three things go together, right? Being born again or born from above in the kingdom of God. Being born from above is being given eyes to see where God is already at work and given a deep desire to get in on it. It's to be formed in the ways of the kingdom of God above all else. And we need that fresh sight, don't we? I mean, we need rebirth to see things again for the first time. We're bombarded with other visions about how the world is, about who we are, about what matters. The newsreels keep us distracted by what's raging, or by the raging and violence that seems to be hell-bent on denying the goodness that God wants for us, the goodness in and for which all things are made. There's things going on in each of our lives. Sometimes the problems seem, seem insurmountable. But one of the gifts of the testimony that we get in the book of Acts is that the people caught up in, with, in the way of Jesus were not neurotic about the state of the world. They just simply went about creating a new one in the shell of the old. They didn't consider that they could take down the Roman Empire. They just refused to be shaped by its violence and arrogance and greed. Right? Instead of running around trying to fix the world or living paralyzed by the world's brokenness, they prayed for the world and then they lived in it becoming the answer to their own prayers. They prayed trusting that they were in cahoots with the God who sets captives free and raises the dead. That they, they prayed with the audacity of a people praying on an empty tomb. I mean, I think it's easy to feel like our, our little efforts, our little lives are kind of hopeless. I mean, what difference does kindness or generosity make in a world that seems to be held captive by warmongers and diabolical greed? The testimony of Scripture and the more faithful parts of church history uh, suggest that it could make all the difference in the world. I mean, surely this little band of crazy Christians in first century Jerusalem could not in their wildest dreams have imagined that their witness to another possibility in the world would overwhelm the blustering Roman Empire in only a couple hundred years. But it did. And of course, the empires of the world have been trying to co-opt the way of Jesus ever since, to kind of tame it into submission, to shape it according to their will. But it remains a fact that wherever Christians have taken seriously their call to bear witness to another way, the world pays attention and lives are changed. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved, Acts tells us. Those who were learning to live a new possibility, a much deeper grace than they had ever known. Which brings us to the third thing that Jesus says as an earthly reality, which is the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, particularly in John's Gospel, but in all of the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is not kind of a vague, ethereal, distant reality. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is the active agent of God's presence and power in the world. Right? The Holy Spirit is the one who brings resurrection life to birth in us and through us. St. Paul says in one of his letters, in the letter of the Romans, uh, maybe the Corinthians, one of his letters, he says that, <laughs> he, he says that uh, we can't even say Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
We can't even say Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Holy Spirit, even to be able to think, let alone articulate and then live the, the consequences and reality of the fact that a crucified Jew from the backwoods of the Roman Empire is truly the Lord of Lords, <laughs> the one through whom and for thing, whom all things are made. That takes a kind of knowledge and audacity that we just don't have on our own. Paul says in another letter, it's the very Spirit of God. This is in Philippians. I'm sure of this one. <laughs> it's the very Spirit of God that's at work in us to will and to work for God's good pleasure. It's the very Spirit of God at work in us to work and to will, will and to work for God's good pleasure. That's in God for the world, right? Letting the very Spirit of God, the breath, the wind of God, give us a holy desire to see God's will and way take shape in our lives and in the places we inhabit and letting that same spirit give us the power and courage to get after it, to do it. The creativity and love we need to see Jesus' way in our lives. I really do think that, that us gathered here today and all of us, whether we're in person or online, it is the work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, we could be doing anything else and nobody would blame us. It's sunny out in Vancouver. We could be doing anything else. But it seems to me that there must be a desire, a desire both to will and to work for God's good pleasure, to want what God wants and get after it, that has us here. Now, maybe we wouldn't articulate it that way. Maybe we don't know why we're here. <laughs> it's okay. That's fine. Jesus says those who are caught up in the Spirit usually don't know if they're coming or going. If you're confused, it's fine. But I think as we're intentionally shaped by the Spirit, right, which I think is part of what we do together, as we submit to the Holy Spirit's work in us, as we learn to relish God's intimacy with us, not just for an hour on Sunday mornings, but every day, because we can, we begin to trust that even when the Spirit has us somewhere we weren't expecting, we are where we need to be because He's with us. And we know that wherever we find ourselves, we are part of this wild claim, right? The fresh possibility, the new vision, the resurrection promise that God so loves this world that He sent His only Son not to condemn it, but to save it. May it be so. Amen.